This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Kyle. And I'm Emily. And this is the week of October 26th. Uh, So let's start off with Monday, where we get the contestants Jonathan Lee, a financial regulator from Sherman Oaks, California. Ariel Saland, a wine tasting room host from Sonoma, California, and Brian Adams, an educator from Big Bear Lake, California, whose one-day cash winnings total $17,201. And in the Jeopardy round, we find the categories, We Are the Champions, It's Hyphenated, Bones, A Quiet Place, Historic Lasts, and Words That Are In comprehensible. Uh, Each correct response in that category will be made up of letters from the word comprehensible. Yep. Another one of those categories that I always have a really hard time with. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I I struggled with this one a lot. Comprehensible just has too many letters for me to keep track of them all. Mm -hmm. It helps being on stage that you can look at the title of the category every yes, time. Yes, that's right. That's not available to you if you're watching at home. But if you're on the stage, then you have the clue just on its one tile on the board and the category title up at the top. Mm-hmm. I said cinders for a fire's smoldering remains, but there is no D in the word comprehensible. They were looking for embers there. Ryan got that one. Yep. And um, this is embarrassing at the $800 level. Term applicable, no. yes, to both a tirade and a speech based on scripture delivered by clergy. I focused more on the furthest part and thought screed, which you would think I would have learned. Oh, no, this was before. Uh, this was before Cinder's, uh, Cinder's Emperors. Um, uh, there's no D. <laughs> yes. Again, there's no D in the word comprehensible. <laughs> but there isn't uh, the, the letters for the word sermon. Right. A sermon. That's not something I do every week. Yeah, I was going to say, you don't oh. have a lot of experience there, so that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. No, that was that was an embarrassing miss for me. Now you've shared it with everyone who listens. Yes, there we go. I just I just humiliate myself every week for this podcast. Uh, I, think, I think we do a fair amount of, or an equal amount of embarrassing. Yeah. Daily Double number one shows up in... The A Quiet Place category at the $800 level. It's pick number 25. Uh, Brian finds it. He's in the lead at 6400 Ariel is at 3000 and Jonathan's at 4400 And he wagers 3200 half of what he's got. And he gets the clue. The phrase silent running originated with this type of vessel going quiet to avoid detection. And he gets that right. That is a submarine. Mm-hmm. Uh, so at the end of the Jeopardy round, uh, Brian is at a significant lead at 9,600. Jonathan is back at 4,600, and Ariel's at 3,000. And they get the double Jeopardy categories, composers, airplane mode, fill in the animal quotes, a five martini library, sounds like money to me, and on its western border. So they give you a location, and you need to tell what's on its western border. Mm-hmm. And they left five clues on the board in this round. Yes, they did. Which was strange. Didn't I don't really know what happened. 
Yeah, it didn't feel like it took long, and they they weren't there weren't any video clues or anything like that. I don't know. They just needed to cut it short so that they could show me even more election commercials. Ah, that's probably it. Actually, there <laughs> yeah. were a, a lot of triple stumpers. One, two, uh, three, four, five, six. Yeah, there were six, seven, eight. There were eight triple stumpers, so that does cut into the time. Mm-hmm. That's not true. Very much. Yeah. I don't know. I'm just always happy when I think about the movie Babe, or the book, for that matter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in the fill-in-the-animal movie quotes we had from Babe, that'll do blank, that'll do, that's pig, of course. Yeah. And yeah. That, that one sent me off on a thought about... You know, how often does Alex, I'm sure at this point he's he's really well into it, but like how often in Jeopardy history has he read a clue like that and accidentally just said the line? Mm. You know, like like he's accidentally filled in the blank because it's something that he knows. Because I, I was thinking like, man, if I were reading that clue, I would not have said blank. Yeah. I would have just powered right through it. And then I'd been like, oh, crap. Now we got to do it. <laughs> well, there's clue. the answer. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Mm hmm. Yeah. Probably never because he's a professional and I'm a doofus. <laughs> I don't know. Surely it's happened a few times at least. We had a we had a rough triple stumper at the eight hundred dollar level of a five martini library. Uh near the end of this Hemingway novel, Jake and Brett each have three martinis at a bar in Madrid. Jonathan guessed what is a farewell to arms. Brian guessed what is for whom the bell tolls. Um and Ariel did not hazard a guess, um, but the correct response here is the sun also rises. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I can never keep my Hemingway novels straight. I have not bothered to read them. I can tell you, Farewell to Arms is set in Italy. Oh, okay. And then, and then they run away to Switzerland. For Whom the Bell Tolls is set during the Spanish Civil War, and then The Sun Also Rises is also set in Spain, so... yeah. If you have, if you don't know the books, then that's kind of a toss-up between those two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we find Daily Double number two as the next pick at the $1,200 level of Five Martini Library. This is the sixth pick. Ariel finds it and wagers 2200 of her $4,600. Uh, Brian is at 10000 at this point, and Jonathan is at 3800 And Ariel gets the clue. In a Kurt Vonnegut novel... Bonnie, a cocktail waitress at the Holiday Inn, calls martinis this, the book's title. Ariel doesn't know it. She ends up guessing what is holy water. Um, the correct response here is breakfast of champions. Slaughterhouse fire. Oh. <laughs> cat's cradle. Yeah. It's a cat's cradle. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. Breakfast of champions. I did not know that was why that book was called that, but I did know enough Kurt Vonnegut titles to kind of match it up i did not i forgot that that was a kurt vonnegut book yeah so i was like is it cat's cradle why would she call it that that doesn't make sense yeah yeah anything in uh composers that you liked i mean they were fine yeah questions i thought for jeopardy people i thought they were a bit gettable yeah um I, especially the $2,000 clue. The third movement of his sweet Bergamasque is the famed Claire de Lune. And that's Debussy. I feel like Claire de Lune and Debussy is a Pavlov that should not be at the $2,000 level. Yeah, 1200 max. 
Yeah, if anything, the 1600 was harder. This composer of the Barber of Seville was the son of, of working musicians, a horn player, and a singer. And that's Rossini. I, I think fewer people would know that Rossini was that composer yeah. than would know Debussy with Claire de Lune. Now, if you picked mm-hmm. a different piece by Debussy, maybe that would be much more difficult. But anyway, so Daily Double number three shows up at pick number 23. It's in the airplane mode category at the $1,200 level. Jonathan finds this one. He's at 8,600, Brian is at 15,200, and Ariel is at 2,800, and he wagers 4,000. And the clue is, this World War I fighter plane from the Sopwith Company got its nickname from the hump-shaped gun housing in front of the cockpit. And he seems to guess what is a camel plane, and Mm -hmm. that that was acceptable, the Sopwith camel. Yeah. We had only a couple more clues after that but a but a um kind of a disappointing miss at the two thousand dollar level of that category um from the french for wing this movable surface near a wing's trailing edge controls banking and other maneuvers jonathan guessed rudder that was incorrect and then brian rang in and guessed uh what is the Erleon? uh and then alex kind of prompted him to repeat himself and he tried Ileon or Erlon or something like that. Um, this is Ileron, apparently. I was yes. not familiar with that. So like I just it just breaks my heart when somebody clearly has seen the word or heard the word, you know, and qu- mm-hmm. can't quite exactly bring back bring it back. Yeah. They know the information, they just don't have the answer. Yeah, and we had a couple of uh, wrong answers like that this week where somebody was very, very close, but, you know, transposed a couple of consonants or added one or something like that. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Brian is in the lead at 13,200. Jonathan has 9,000 and Ariel has 2,800. And they get the final Jeopardy category, Ancient Texts. And the clue, developed in the 18th century BC and named for a ruler... It aimed to settle all disputes and heal all injuries. Ariel wagered zero and did not manage to come up with anything. Jonathan wagered 600 and guessed what is the code of Hammurabi. That is correct. And uh, Brian wagered 5,000, a cover bet and a little bit. And had what is Hammurabi's code, um, not spelled exactly correctly, but that does not matter for Jeopardy. Uh, so that is correct. And he's the winner going into Tuesday. Mm-hmm. So on Tuesday, we get the contestants Casey Turhorst, a biology professor from Pasadena, California. Krista Gush, a knowledge manager from San Diego, California, which seems like that just puts her at an advantage for Jeopardy. Yeah, knowledge it's all managing knowledge. Yeah. And Brian Adams, an educator from Big Bear Lake, California, whose two-day cash winnings total 35401 Turns out he's a music teacher, mm-hmm. not just an educator, so I'm on his side. And they get the Jeopardy round categories Bible Puri, an encouraging verb, platforms, documentary now. I'm posting that on Telegram, and it all starts with a Greek letter. Mm-hmm. Brian, at least, seems to like jumping around the board some, mm-hmm. and uh, everybody else kind of followed suit, although they worked mm, roughly left to right, at least, for the for the first portion of the round. So we started in the Bible Puri category, which, you know, I like that. 
I thought these were all pretty gettable. Um, yeah, I did too. Yeah, and they got most of them, except they didn't know who was king after David. That's Solomon. Uh, Saul, David, Solomon. And there's, you know, there's a whole story to that. It's maybe easier to remember if you learn them as, as figures rather than just memorizing the order. But yeah, Solomon after David. I thought the, I'm posting that on Telegram. Is that an Instagram joke? Is that what they're doing there? I think so. Okay. I thought that whole category was kind of interesting. Um, all stories of, you know, telegrams. Uh, the death of this inventor, of course, brought telegrams like Brigham Young's My Affections Follow Him to the Spirit World. Uh, that's Morse. At the $1,000 level, we had one about um, uh, a panicky telegram about Native Americans dancing in the snow brought an influx of troops and led to this 1890 massacre. Um, Casey guessed what is little bighorn, uh, the correct response there. Brian had it is wounded knee. Um, so all kinds of, you know, telegram tidbits from history. Um, and that's where we found daily double number one as the 19th pick at the $400 level. Brian finds this one and wagers 3000 of his 5,000. Krista has 2,400 at this point and Casey has 800. And Brian gets the clue. As World War II began, the Royal Navy was cheered up by a telegram saying, this politician is back. And he correctly responded, who is Winston Churchill? Uh So that extends his lead. And at the end of the Jeopardy round, Brian has 10,600 to Krista's 4,200 and Casey's 1,200. And we get the double Jeopardy round categories, astronomy, keyboard instruments, the book of Job, South America, pop culture, and the rhyme factor. Each correct answer will rhyme with the word factor. And I thought the book of Job, didn't we just have a Bible category in in the Jeopardy round? We did. This is the book of Job. Mm -hmm. These are books that have an occupation in the title, and they have inserted a blank, and you are supposed to fill in what the occupation is. Uh, we had Louise Fitzhugh, Harriet the blank, that is spy. Uh, Thomas Hardy, the blank of Casterbridge. That one was a triple stumper. It's mare. Brian guessed what is a ghost. Um, we had John Le Carre, the night blank. Uh, Krista guessed watchman. That's what I guessed also. Uh, correct response here is manager. Uh, John Fowles, the French blanks woman. That is lieutenant. Casey got that one. And then at the $2,000 level, my seven-year-old got it. I mean, not in the game. Brian got it in the game. Um, C.S. Lewis, the blank's nephew. uh, That is the magician's nephew. That's the... Prequel. uh, Yeah, the prequel. The the origin story, the creation myth of the Chronicles of Narnia. Mm -hmm. Uh, We get daily double number two in the South America category. Pick number 15. Brian finds it. He is in the lead at 11,400. Uh, Krista is at 7,800 and Casey's at 2,400. And he wagers 5,000. He gets the clue, this South American capital is named for an event not mentioned in the Bible, but declared dogma by Pius XII in 1950. And he does not know. He guesses what is Buenos Aires, but it is Asuncion. Yes. Which is the capital of Paraguay? Yes. Yeah. Capital of Paraguay. Mm-hmm. And named after the Assumption of the Virgin Mary. Um, uh, 
a belief that she was taken bodily into heaven. Yeah, that's what the assumption is. I'm not sure that people who are, I think Catholics know that, but Protestants might not. Also not mentioned in the Bible, and and people mix this up, and it's a pet peeve of mine, so let me just just, uh, say, the Immaculate Conception is not the conception of Jesus. It is the conception of the Virgin Mary, and it is not mentioned in the Bible, but it is the um, doctrine that Mary was conceived, like, was born without sin, so as to be, like, an appropriate, like, vessel for the birth of the Son of God. So, uh... So yeah, people assume the Immaculate Conception refers to Jesus. It does not. Anyway, he misses that one, but then he gets uh, the next clue uh, correctly answering which planet is the seventh as Uranus. And then he calls the next one and it it is the third Daily Double uh, at the $1,600 level of astronomy. So at this point, Brian has 7,200 and wagers 3,000 to Krista's 7,800 and Casey's 2,400. He gets the clue, also known as the Swan. This constellation in the northern sky is home to the first black hole discovered, and he correctly responds, what is Cygnus? He sort of started nodding before Alex got to the end of the clue. I like that. I like that when you, when you can see that they've got it and they're, like, comfortable and confident. It is nice. Yeah. yeah. So they they leave another four on the board in this round. I'm not sure what it is with the double jeopardy rounds going slow, but so at the end of the double jeopardy round, Brian is in the lead at fifteen thousand four hundred. Krista is at ten thousand six hundred, and Casey is at thirty six hundred. And the final jeopardy category is the thirteen colonies. And the clue is pride in the document under which this future state was governed from 1639 to 1662 led to its official state nickname. Casey wrote, what is Kentucky? That is incorrect. And she lost uh, 1,201. Krista wrote, what is Virginia? And that is also incorrect. So she lost 4,801. And Brian made a cover bet of 5900 and he wrote what is pennsylvania that is also incorrect they were looking for connecticut mm-hmm. which is the constitution state yes solid wagering in mm-hmm. in uh I, I don't want to say all of the games this week maybe i'm forgetting something but you know it seems like it seems like this uh this group of contestants people know their wagering strategy yeah i had that same impression yeah So on Wednesday, we have the contestants Jennifer Spinos, a third grade teacher from Las Vegas, Nevada, Scott Shrum, a digital marketing executive from Westlake Village, California, and Brian Adams, an educator from Big Bear Lake, California, whose three-day cash winnings total $44,901. And we get the Jeopardy round categories, books of 2020, do your job, around the USA, hodgepodge, in the weeds and from S to T. Each correct response will begin with an S and end with a T. We left three unrevealed in this round. Yeah. And uh, they struggled with the hodgepodge category. They only got one correct. Yeah. You know why they struggled with it? Why? Because it wasn't called potpourri. Yeah. That's the problem. No, because one of the questions is about League of Legends. <laughs> <laughs> that was not the right group to ask. Yeah. Um, 
I felt like what I mean, I, I don't know what they were thinking, but I felt like I saw the awareness that it is fair to ask what the most popular video game in the world is. Yeah, I agree. Especially I... if you're given an acronym for it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. but none of them do it. You know, there's there's that feeling where you're like, oh, yeah, that's that's a valid thing for people to know. I just don't. Yeah. Um, and I felt yeah. like I was seeing that reaction from all of them. Right. It was a $400 clue. The clue was in the 2010s, LOL, this multiplayer game surpassed WOW or WOW as the world's most popular video game. And that's mm-hmm. League of Legends. And of course, I mean, we should all know that WOW is World, world of, of Warcraft. Warcraft. Yeah, I knew yes. that one. Oh, it was. Scott really knew his weeds. I had the same the same feeling. He like he he almost ran that weed category. Yeah, Jennifer got the got the two hundred, but Scott got all the rest of them. Got in first and got them all right on the on the first try. Yeah. So the first daily double comes up super early in the game. It's pick number two. Brian finds it. It's in the around the USA category. Uh, he got the first clue correct, so he is up to a whopping $400, and Scott and Jennifer are at zero. He wagers 1000 and he gets the clue. Major cities that share this name lie on the Kennebec River in Maine and on the Savannah River in Georgia. And he struggles with it, and he guesses what is Charleston that's wrong, which is correct, that is wrong. It was Augusta. Mm-hmm. Augusta. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, uh, Brian is up to 3,200. Uh, he, he had a rough rough go of it at the start of the game. He, he dropped down a lot. Uh, Scott's in the lead at 6,000, and Jennifer is at negative 400. And they get the Double Jeopardy categories, Ancient Contemporaries, Bands of the 21st Century. What's your IP address with the initials I and P in quotation marks? Literature on the map. Everyday German in English, which I loved, and New York Times headlines. Mm-hmm. The translation of German words is just so funny. Because, like, yeah. German words are just very, like, basic words mashed together. Everything is like a compound word. It's really great. I love it. Mm-hmm. Um, we unfortunately did not hear from Jennifer at all in Double Jeopardy. She never rang in again after uh, after the Jeopardy round ended. Yeah. I don't know if she was getting out buzzed or if she got, you know, kind of shaken by the yeah. first round or, yeah. Pro- maybe a combination of both, probably. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, in the IP address category at the $1,200 level, Dr. Robert Wang helped create this brand of multi-cooker whose name implies speed. Brian guesses what is Instapot and is ruled incorrect. And Alex said we were looking for Instant Pot. There is a difference between Instapot and Instant Pot, which is the brand we were going for. I'm not finding a separate brand called Instapot. I think it's just a way that people... Refer to it. Refer, incorrectly refer to Instant Mm -hmm. Pot. Yeah. I use my Instant Pot like multiple times a week, incidentally. Um. Yeah, we do too. This well, has been appliance recommendations. Yeah, <laughs> with no, it's Emily and Kyle. They're so great. They're it's great, like even, even for like spaghetti and meatballs. Uh, I, I actually, pot. you just I throw literally it in. had spaghetti and meatballs from the Instant Pot for dinner tonight. Yes, it's so easy. 
Yes. It's it, like, even though spaghetti and meatballs is pretty easy, like, you don't even have to boil water. It's right. like, throw it in. Mm-hmm. Everyone yeah. should get one. Christmas yes. gift recommendation or mm-hmm. holiday gift if you don't celebrate Christmas. Yeah. Or if, if you don't celebrate any of them, you know what? Treat yourself. Yeah. It's a great gadget. Highly recommend. Daily Double number two, which turns out to be the last of the Daily Doubles because the third one must have been hiding somewhere in ancient contemporaries. Um, So Daily Double number two comes up in bands of the 21st century as the 17th pick at the $1,600 level. Scott finds it and wagers 5,000 of his 8,000. He is in a tie with Brian at this point, and Jennifer is still at negative 400. He gets the clue. Jack White has had some conflict with Dan Auerbach of this band, whose name oddly mirrors the White Stripes, and he correctly responds, who are the Black Keys. Mm-hmm. I did not know that one. I, I got it from the mirrors, the White Stripes. Yeah. I got to the black something, and then when he said the black keys, I'd, like, I'd heard of them. I just wasn't going to get the band name. Yeah. So that brings him up quite a bit. Um, so at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Scott has 17,800. Brian has 12,000. Jennifer's still at negative 400, so she does not get to participate in Final Jeopardy, where the category is awards and honorees. And the clue is... He used his 1983 Pritzker Prize money on a scholarship fund for Chinese students to study their profession in the United States. Um, And to me, I think the key here is knowing what the Pritzker Prize is. Yes. If you know that that is an architecture prize, then you're golden. And if you Mm -hmm. don't, you're going to have to struggle. I had forgotten that it was an architecture prize. Brian wagered 8,000. Is that correct? Is that the correct amount to wager? I don't think so. No, I think that's too big. Yeah, Scott has to wager, what, like 6,201. So Brian should should wager really small here, Mm -hmm. uh, if anything. But he wagers 8,000. It's not the correct move strategically, but it pays off for him because he knows the answer. Who is I am pay or <laughs> who I am pay. Okay. <laughs> and a shout out to his uh, his high school's performing arts club. Woo. Yeah, so that that is correct. You're you know, you're if you're trying to think of a Chinese American architect, I am pay is kind of the one to know. Scott also gets I am pay um, and he has wagered six thousand three hundred. A cover bet and a little bit. So he is our champion going into Thursday. On Thursday, we get the contestants Carmela Chan, a biotech researcher from San Diego, California. Lisa Gerlach, a veterinary neurologist from West Hills, California. And Scott Shrum, a digital marketing executive from Westlake Village, California, who just won $24,100. And the Jeopardy round categories are blockbusters. National parks, weapon types, four-letter synonyms, U.S. hospitals, and a seriously fluffy category. If I can quibble, maybe <laughs> maybe this is not worth quibbling. Uh, at the $600 level of fluffy category, nephoscopes measure the speed and direction of these fluffy things. They're not fluffy. They just look fluffy. They're clouds. <laughs> How do you define fluffy? I don't know. I mean... 
I feel like it's a texture, like it has to have a fluffy texture when you touch it. Whereas if you touched a cloud, it would have like a like a wet texture. Like it would it's mist, right? Like it would it would be misty. Um, okay. I don't know. I mean, sure. I'm they not going like, to argue with you on this. They look like they would feel like a like 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 a sheep or something if you touch them, but like we know that's not correct. Do we? I think. Have you ever touched a clown? Well, I mean, I guess it depends on how you define cloud, right? Like, I think you're making my point for me. <laughs> okay. Um. Uh. Anyway. Oh, oh, if I can quibble, also. Apparently, uh, you can. So with, let's uh, do this with the eight hundred dollar level of blockbusters. I mean, I'm glad Carmela got the points, but oh, oh, and it's noted in the archive, so somebody else shares my quibble. The clue was the premise of this 2017 film. Four teens are sucked into a magical video game where they meet Nick Jonas. Uh, Carmela responds, what is Jumanji? And they accepted it. They were looking for Jumanji. Welcome to the jungle. I think Alex didn't know that maybe he shouldn't accept it. I think maybe he he went a little bit rogue there. Mm -hmm. Um, But Jumanji is a totally separate movie. True. Yeah. Yeah. Like Robin Williams and like. You know, I, I mean, I, I, I'm aware of it. Yes, <laughs> I, I, I just, I don't know. I, it's the difference between that being a subtitle and that being part of the title. Yeah, you know, I don't know. Yeah, uh, Daily Double number one comes up as the 26th pick at the thousand dollar level of national parks. Lisa finds it and wagers fifteen hundred of her thirty six hundred. Scott has 3,200 at that point, and Carmela is in the lead with 5,400. And Lisa gets the clue. This drainage line runs northwest-southeast through Rocky Mountain National Park. And she responds, what is the continental divide? Alex says, is that a guess? She says, yes. He says, it's a pretty good guess. That's right. Woo! Yeah. Which brings her up close to, but not quite all the way to... uh, Carmela's lead. Mm-hmm. They did reveal all the clues in the single Jeopardy round, but they will not reveal all the clues in the double Jeopardy round, which they head into with Carmela in the lead with 5,800, Lisa's at 5,500, and Scott is at 3,400, and they get the categories Soviet blockbusters, <laughs> antiques, translated geographic names, Alliterative authors, they will need both names, first and last, science TV, and be somethinged with B-E and then E-D in quotation marks. Uh, so each correct response will start with B-E and end with E-D. So for example, at the $800 and $1,200 respectively, betrothed and besieged. Just got to keep coming up with those categories. Yep. <laughs> day in and day out. Yeah. Always another gimmick. Mm-hmm. I missed the $2,000 clue in that category, uh, which was lacking knowledge, unenlightened. Literally, it refers to a traveler who must stop because it gets dark. And I thought to myself, oh, maybe that's what befuddled means. Oh. But the correct response here is benighted. Which makes sense, I suppose. Yes. Uh, we had another one of those almost but not quite uh, pronunciation misses in the translated geographic names category at the $800 level. 
um, an Algonquian language, people of the Point Bay, Rhode Island was the clue. And Carmela rang in and said, what is Narragansett? Alex had her repeat herself. She said the same thing again, but I think a little more slowly. She had added an N. It is not Narragansett. It is Narragansett. Mm-hmm. Um, so she she missed that one. Yep. We get daily double number two at the uh, $800 level in the alliterative authors category. It is pick number 16. Carmela finds it. Uh, she is at 11,800. Scott's at 6,600. And Lisa is in the lead at 13,900. And she wagers 7,000. Big, mm. bold bet. And she gets the clue. One of his most famous characters, Harry Holler, has the same initials as the author. And she gets it correct. That is Herman Hesse. Herman Hesse. Mm-hmm. Slingshots her way into the lead. Yes. I like a bold move. Mm -hmm. Lisa finds Daily Double number three at the $1,600 level of translated geographic names. This is the 25th pick. She wagers $3,500 of her $15,900. At this point, Scott is at $6,600 and Carmela is at $20,400. Um, yeah so i think that she's looking here not to hand carmella a lock game if she misses Mm -hmm. which i which i get strategically although arguably a better move is to try and get the lead um this late in the game so really i you could go it could go either way i guess it depends maybe on how you feel about the category and what what kind of style of play is your preference right In any case, she gets the clue, Welsh, High Hill, Pennsylvania. And she doesn't know the answer. Um, She says, what is Philadelphia? Which I'm sure that she and all the other contestants know is not Welsh and doesn't mean High Hill because we all know that's City of Brotherly Love, right? Mm -hmm. Um, The correct response here is Bryn Mawr. Um, Yeah. It's that two words, B-R-Y-N. M-A-W-R, if you if you are familiar with Welsh at all, you like look at it and you're like, oh yeah, that's Welsh. Um, but yeah. if you can't if you can't bring it to mind, then what are you gonna do? Right. Lots of Ys, lots of Ws. Yep. I love Welsh. I don't know the language at all. But it's man. just really cool looking. <laughs> and and sounding. I love the way yeah. Welsh people talk. Oh mm-hmm. their accent is so good and the language when they speak it, oh man. Mm-hmm. I love Welsh. Yep. Anyway. Yeah, she takes a pretty big hit there, uh, but she doesn't hand the game to Carmilla because going into Final Jeopardy, Scott has remained at 6,600 for a while. Uh, Lisa is at 12,400, and Carmilla is in the lead at 19,600. The Final Jeopardy category is lead singers, and the clue is the New York Times said this late Brit's multi-octave range and operatic quality made, quote, even peons to bicycle riding sound emotional. Uh, everyone got it. Uh, Scott wagered everything. Yeah. Uh, all of his 6,600. And he wrote, who is the late, great Freddie Mercury? And he drew a crown. <laughs> he got that right. They accepted that. Lisa wagered 12,397, which would leave $3 if she got it wrong. 
Uh, and she also put who is Freddie Mercury, and Carmilla made a cover bet of 5201, and she also got Freddie Mercury. So she is the winner going into Friday. That's right. So on Friday, we have the contestants John Posen, a speechwriter originally from New York, New York, Chris Shim, a medical student and marine officer from Elk Grove, California, and Carmela Chan, a biotech researcher from San Diego, California, whose one-day cash winnings total $24,801. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, Happy Halloween, All That Jazz Lingo, Two-Word Science Terms, Describing the TV Show, Historic Bells, and A Virtual Tour. We missed two of the clues in the Happy Halloween category, which I realized they they taped in September, August, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> whenever, whenever it was they taped. So they did not probably feel any particular Halloween pressure at that time. But mm-hmm. I felt like, oh, that's the category to miss on right now. Yeah. But hey, we had a town right near me um, at the $1,000 level. October brings out undead soldiers, vampires, and ghosts, all serving the Headless Horsemen at Phillipsburg Manor in this New York village. Uh, that's Sleepy Hollow, uh, like the like the Washington Irving story. Um, and uh, Irvington is close to me also and was uh, changed its name to, uh, to be named after Washington Irving. Oh, yeah. Nice. Yeah. I have not been to the Headless Horseman thing, but there's a there's you can imagine there's a lot of Halloween festivities around here oh, most yeah. years. I could yeah. I could definitely definitely see that. Yeah. We also had uh my favorite Halloween candy, Fight Me, um at the $800 level. This tricolored treat that is let's say not universally adored was once called Chicken Feed. Yum. Yeah, Carmela got that one. It's candy corn. All right. Thank you, listeners. It's been a good year. Uh, this is going to be the last episode. For <laughs> you can just mail it potables. all to me. Actually, I don't, I don't, I don't mind candy corn. Um, <laughs> I, I'm not saying it's better than chocolate. I'm saying there's no specifically Halloween candy. That well, maybe the mellow cream pumpkins are better than candy corn, but I like all of that like weird waxy stuff. Yeah, I would. I was gonna say. Well, what about like the that nasty taffy that everyone seems to have and give out that oh, nobody gross. wants to eat? I would yeah, say no, that's, thank you. I would say that's pretty like uh, specifically Halloween. It, it's on brand yeah. for Halloween. It's like oh, uh-huh. this is creepy. Yeah, no, that I don't. I don't like that. Yeah, I don't mind. I don't mind candy corn. I don't, yeah. it is to me middle of the road. I don't, I don't know why people get worked up about it either way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I like candy corn a lot. Okay. It's no Reese's, but you know, I, I wouldn't think of Reese's as a Halloween specific candy. Sure. It's my favorite thing to get at Halloween. Mm-hmm. They make the trees and stuff. It, it's, you know, Reese's are for all seasons. Nice. I always liked the pamphlets uh, uh, teaching me about the dangers of the occult. I always enjoyed getting mm. those for Halloween. <laughs> I uh, I opened my sermon this morning explaining the Christian roots of Halloween. Although I think some of my congregants may still be looking at me askance. They, hmm. you know, sometimes it just doesn't matter what I say. You're not yeah. that far from Salem mm-hmm. when it comes down to it. Yeah. Anyway, uh, we get Daily Double number one in the Historic Bells category. Uh, It is at the $400 level. Chris finds it. He is in the lead at $4,000. 
Carmelo's at 600 and John's at 2800 and he wagers 1200 and he gets a clue. It first rang in 1859, cracked later that year, and was refitted with a lighter hammer. Uh, and he guesses what is Notre Dame, but that is Big Ben. And that is actually the last clue in that category that they uncovered, so they had already been through uh, the Liberty Bell, um, the Peace Bell in Japan, and other bells, so... I don't know that there's all that much to go on here. Did you no. did you know this one? No, I didn't. The only clue to me is 1859, unless you know specifically that it cracked and was refitted. Yeah. Um, yeah. But since we had gone through the other bells, I was like, well, I mean, we already had a Liberty Bell one. That can't be that. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And it wouldn't make sense for the Liberty Bell to crack in 1859. I think I could have ruled out the Liberty Bell even if we hadn't had that clue yet. But... Yeah, mm. I would have I would have struggled like Chris on this one. We had two incorrect enterprise answers. I thought that was a funny uh, coincidence. Um, one in the describing the TV show category, where oh. the clue was a 2020 data reentry seven of nine two. Isn't that Will Riker and Deanna Troy engage? Um, Carmela guessed what is em- enterprise. Chris said what is Star Trek Picard. And then in a virtual tour at the $400 level, you'll find, find in quotation marks, that you can virtually explore the space shuttle inside and out at a Smithsonian hangar in Virginia. Chris guessed what is the Enterprise. Uh, So that's our second incorrect Enterprise guess. And John tried what is the Endeavor, but that is Discovery. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Carmela is in third place at 2400 Chris is in second place at 3,400, and John is in first place at 4,400. And they get the double Jeopardy categories, fiction, famous Margarets, movie sequels, differ by a letter, if you lived here, and be home now. Mm-hmm. Fun little thing. Uh, they left five clues on the board. Yeah. In this round. It didn't seem like they were playing all that slowly. No, but this whole week has been a lot of clues left on the board. I don't know if there was something in taping or what that made them Just wanted a lot of time for horrible political ads. That must be it. I mean, can't wait for them to be over. Maybe maybe during the season they are like told to give an extra minute or whatever on ad time. Yeah. Okay. $2,000 clue of if you lived here. It was a triple stumper. The clue is, if you lived here, and they showed a picture of somewhere, uh, from 1808 to 1814, you were this romantic poet. Think the one who grew up rich. Carmela incorrectly guessed who is Shelley. Chris incorrectly guessed who is Keats. And John incorrectly guessed who is Tennyson. But it's Lord Byron. Mm-hmm. Lord Byron has been coming up a lot on Jeopardy lately. He sure has. And I guessed Lord Byron. So nice I job! Got it. I got Yay! It, but yeah. Uh, Daily Double Two number comes up in Differ by a Letter at the $1,600 level. It's the 15th pick, and Carmela finds it. Um, and I think I've said we don't often see the Daily Doubles in wordplay categories, although that seems to be shifting a little bit. Probably they've been listening to my feedback. I'm sure that's how that works. We have a lot um, of influence. We already oh know yeah. that. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. Lots of pull. Uh, she wagers 5,000 of her 8,800. John is in the lead at this point with 10,400. Chris has 7,800. And she gets the clue, a place to throw back some drinks. 
and a large natural underground chamber. And she responds, what are a cafe and a cave? That's not what they're looking for, but they accept it. They were looking for tavern and cavern, but cafe and cave fits the category yeah. and the clue. Yeah. So good on her. Yeah, very impressive. Mm-hmm. She did a really good job uh, in this category in particular. I thought she got she did. Uh, she got two of the others. Chris got one, and there was a triple stumper. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we got Daily Double number three. It is the $1,600 clue in If You Lived Here. We've talked about nearly that whole category. Uh, John finds it, and he wagers 4000 of his 11600 Carmela is in the lead at thirteen eight, and Chris is at $8,200. Uh, John gets the clue. Around 1900, if you were living on this island 10 miles off French Guiana, better hope you were a guard and not a prisoner. And John seems to know what island they're talking about, because he guesses what is where Papillon was. But that's Devil's Island. Mm-hmm. Okay, so he did know what he did know the island. Uh, he just couldn't remember yeah. the name. Yeah, that's rough. We had a tough moment in the very last clue of the round this ended up this ended up deciding the game mm-hmm. it's the 25th because they left five unrevealed it's a 1600 dollars level of be home now uh the clue was if you want your package delivered when someone is home these two words follow adult in a fedex option present required and chris said signature required and they were both ruled incorrect and they both dropped down 1600 Mm-hmm. Signature required is the correct response, but Chris did not phrase his response in the form of a question. In the Jeopardy round, you will get a prompt if you forget to yep. phrase your response in the form of a question. In Double Jeopardy, you just lose the points. Yep. Um, so he lost 1600 instead of gaining 1600, uh, which means that he finished with 4600 in se- instead of 7800. Right, a thirty-two hundred dollar yep. swing, which makes Carmela's fourteen thousand two hundred a lot game. Like you get the prompt in in single Jeopardy, and in double Jeopardy, usually there's a pause at least. Usually there's a pause at least. Yeah. Yeah. Which I mean, at that point, you should. I feel like you should get it. I feel like normally people get it. <laughs> it mm-hmm. was just weird that both of them did that incorrectly. Yeah, it was a little bit less leeway, I think, than Alex usually mm-hmm. gives, and often he'll like. If it's your first mistake, he'll give you a pause. Yeah. I don't know that I don't know that either of them had made this error before. And he hands Carmela a lock game by making this error, and then Carmela misses final jeopardy and Chris gets it. So he would have won this game. He'd have had it. If if he had phrased it as in the form of a question. So yep. It's a heartbreaker. I just gave away a bunch of stuff if you're like learning how the game went from from this recap. So yeah, Carmela is at 14,200 at the end of Double Jeopardy. Chris is at 4,600. John is at 4,000. And their final Jeopardy category is phrases of the 1950s. And the clue is a 1954 book review said of this colorful two-word term, also applied to the post-World War I era, the underlying hysteria lives on. John wagered everything but a dollar, 3,999, and said, what is the Red Scare? And that is correct. Uh, Chris wagered 4,599, also everything but a dollar, and also had what is Red Scare. Carmela wagered 1,800, 
think she's trying to get up to 16,000. If she misses, she will still be well above Chris's double up. Hmm. Um, But she has this incorrect. She says, what is yellow journalism? But it doesn't matter except in her dollar total uh, because she had that lock game. So she drops down to 12,400 and will be our champion when we return next week. That is right. That is the week. So this is the time when we remind you that the world still needs you. Um, uh, If you're listening to this on or before election day, please vote. Maybe you've already voted. I hope you've already voted. But if you haven't voted and you can vote, this is your time. Go vote. Uh, We also want to remind you that you can check out blacklivesmatter.com or communityjusticeexchange.org to connect with organizations doing important work in your community, and we hope that you will. That's more important than supporting our Patreon or any other you know media that you consume, although those are good things to do as well. But in our point of view, not the top priority. So we just want to encourage you to get connected somewhere and do something that makes a difference. Yes, indeed. And wear your masks. Wear your masks. Things are worse now than they ever have been mm-hmm. in that particular regard. So wear, wear your masks, please. Yep. Yes. Thank you. Kyle, do you have deep dive guesses? There's so many. There are so many. I, I do. Are you talking about the Wright brothers? I'm not talking about the Wright brothers. Okay. Are you talking about the Innocence Project? Oh, I'm not, but that would be good. Ah, I really, I, that, that was the one that I thought was like, ooh, that could be, that could be. Are you talking about Bildungsroman? Oh, I considered it, but no. Um, you actually brought this one up just a minute ago, and I had to play it real cool. Lord Byron. Ah, uh, I purposely <laughs> didn't guess that one. I was like, we talk about poetry all the time. There's no way she's talking about Lord Byron. Yeah, but this will be um, good for me, I guess. Y- yeah. Um, well, he had an interesting life, and I, 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 I think I promised you no like final questions in the quiz about poetry for six months or something anyway we're probably past that point (laughs) yeah there's a there's a there's a little poetry in the quiz um that's fine but yeah no we're we're talking about lord byron and we just talked about that so i don't need to i don't need to read it back but yeah lord byron he's been coming up a lot so i figured you know it was time Um, So uh, the Lord Byron TLDR is he was a British early 19th century leading figure of the Romantic movement, a poet, a politician, a lord, obviously, who wrote two major lengthy narrative poems, Child Harold's Pilgrimage and Don Juan. It looks like you should pronounce it Don Juan, but he was a poet who very clearly rhymed it with words like ruin. Mm hmm. He uh, joined the Greek War of Independence, fighting against the Ottoman Empire, died very young there at age 36. And he was also kind of a, you know, a scandalous society figure. So that's that's the the thumbnail sketch. Um, But let's get into a little little bit more. He was born George Gordon Byron on January 22, 1788. The only child of Captain John Byron uh, and his second wife, Catherine Gordon, the heiress of the Gite estate in Aberdeenshire, Scotland. John Byron's first marriage had been scandalous uh, to Amelia Marchioness of Carmathen? Carmathen? I don't know how you say that. Who left her husband to marry him. Mm-hmm. 
uh, but their two children had died in infancy, um, and she had died of tuberculosis. You should not have a drinking game where you drink every time somebody dies of tuberculosis, because this is going to happen a lot in this deep dive. It was, although it was reported that her uh, her death was hastened by her remorse over leaving her husband for this scandalous marriage. Um, That's scientific, anyway. yeah. Makes yeah. Sense. So she died, and uh, and John Byron married Catherine Gordon in 1785. This marriage was said to be for her wealth. Um, he took the additional surname Gordon, styling himself John Byron Gordon of Gite. Catherine Gordon sold her land and title to pay her new husband's debts, uh, leaving them only with a modest annual income from a trust. They went to France to evade his creditors, um, but Catherine ended up returning to England in 1787, where she gave birth to her son, uh, who would become eventually Lord Byron. His father wanted to name him William, um, but his father had stayed in France, so Catherine named him. She named him George Gordon after her father. Byron was born with a deformed foot. History is not clear on what exact condition. Um, I've encountered uh, things saying club foot, um, but it's not totally clear. In any case, he had a limp throughout his life um, and seems to have been insecure about, about this condition. He and Catherine moved back to Aberdeenshire in 1790. George Gordon Byron Byron grew up there. Uh, John Byron joined them there for for a little bit, uh, but then he and Catherine separated. Um, he kept borrowing money from her. Um, eventually, he used some of that money to go on a trip to France, where he died in 1791. Not clear from what. I think I encountered some things saying TB. I encountered some things possibly saying suicide. Not totally clear uh, how he died. But in any case, he died in France in 1791. In 1798, uh, Byron's great uncle died, uh, William Byron, posthumously known as Wicked Lord Byron. And at that time, George Gordon Byron was his heir. Uh, he had he had no descendants, so uh, his nephew, uh, then 10 years old, inherited his title, becoming Lord Byron, the sixth Baron Byron of Rochdale and uh, inherited the ancestral home, Newstead Abbey in Nottinghamshire. They, uh, he and his mother went to England, um, uh, but found this inherited an ancestral home in disrepair and decided to lease it out to a tenant instead of inhabiting th it themselves. Uh, Lord Byron's early education was at Aberdeen Grammar School, um, but in August 1799, he entered the school of Dr. William Glennie in Dulwich in South London. His mother apparently withdrew him frequently from school, um, so his studies were inconsistent. He was then sent to Harrow School in 1801, where he was a student until 1805. However, in September 1803, he fell ardently in love with a, a girl, apparently his neighbor, although I also encountered things saying his cousin, Mary, hmm. Mary Chaworth. Uh, so he fell in love with her while he was home on summer holiday and refused to return to school in the fall because of that. He was finally persuaded to go back in January. <laughs> there were a number of ardent friendships, some apparently romantic, some apparently sexual, um, with the other boys of Harrow School. Um, he had ardent friendships and romances and affairs with men and women throughout his life, although homosexuality was very illegal mm -hmm. at the time. And so uh, this is something that biographers sort of 
debated and have, you know, come to identify some sort of coded language and like terms that he would use in in correspondence with friends and sort of it seems like there's consensus around that at this point, but it was not something people had consensus about, you know, shortly after his death. It's something that has been kind of reached by historians subsequently. In autumn 1805, he went to study at Trinity College, Cambridge. He uh, had a close friendship, likely romantic there with um, John Edelston, who will come up throughout his life. Let me pause and say he had numerous, numerous romances and sexual relationships. And I was not able to track them all in this deep dive. This would be that would be a whole other thing. There were just a lot of affairs. I, I'm I'm identifying. I'm mentioning some of the like major important ones, but like it, I, I can't do a deep dive on Lord Biden, Byron's love life. It was very complicated, <laughs> um, uh, and you know, and not all preserved for history. Of course, I've mentioned that he was probably. Uh, it, I don't want to ascribe a sexual orientation. To him because they the terms that we use now I don't know what he, how he would have identified but um, right. but he had romances with with men and with women he also had romances with people who were like really inappropriate like like a twelve year old girl in Greece like no, there were some problems here there's some problematic stuff mm-hmm. um, as well as as well as rumors of um, romances with close relations ah. yeah. Yeah, so I was I was not able to fully follow all the intricacies of his various affairs, obsessions, infatuations, betrayals, blah 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 blah. Um, if you're really if you really want to track all of this, you're going to have to read a full length biography because there's a lot. Anyway, he went to Trinity College for three years. Um, sometime during that period, he found out that his first love, Mary, was now married. He was apparently devastated by this. In 1806, his first volume of poems, Fugitive Pieces, was printed privately, um, but on the advice of a friend, he had it recalled and burned. (laughs) Uh, The poem To Mary uh, about this first love was particularly scandalous and explicit. It was not reprinted during Byron's life. I did find it, uh, and you can find it on Gutenberg if you want to. Indeed, it is explicit. Many of the same poems were reprinted, but not that one. In 1807... In the collection Hours of Idleness, which ended up being his first, you know, official, like published, like not not privately printed, but like published by a publishing house book of poems, which was criticized sharply in the Edinburgh Review, which led Byron to write a satirical poem titled English Bards and Scotch Reviewers, which mocked the popular poets of the day and the reviewer he thought had criticized him. It turns out he was going after the wrong reviewer. He guessed <laughs> wrong who wrote the anonymous review of his work and uh, excoriated completely the wrong guy. Um, but this poem was an exquisitely crafted, brutal takedown of the literary personalities of the day and went through five editions, was popular um, before Byron eventually regretted some of his words and uh, suppressed the sixth, I think the fifth or sixth edition. But yeah, apparently this, w- this was kind of a breakthrough for him. He, you know, mic drop. Yes. Yeah. In 1809, he first took his seat in the House of Lords, but later that year he departed on travels in Europe. It was the customary grand tour of Europe that 
uh, young men of noble birth would go on. Um, he went on his with his friend John Cam Hobhouse. The Napoleonic Wars underway at the time made the typical itinerary impossible, so they had kind of an alternate itinerary for their grand tour of Europe. They visited Portugal, Spain, Malta, Albania, Greece, and Turkey. During this travel, he wrote the first two cantos of Child Harold's Pilgrimage. Child Harold would be published over the course of the years 1812 to 1818. Uh, the complete Child Harold is four cantos, 550-ish pages. Child was a medieval title for a young man seeking knighthood. And uh, this it was a semi-autobiographical poem. It narrates the travels and reflections of a world-weary young man journeying around Europe. Um, it has a sense of disillusionment and melancholy stemming from the sort of the world weariness with the wars of the revolutionary and Napoleonic eras. Um, the first two cantos were acclaimed and Byron wrote, I awoke one morning and found myself famous. <laughs> this was a time when you could get famous for writing an epic poem. Uh, the success of Child Harold was followed up in 1813 and 1814 with the publication of four more, um, I think Byron called them Oriental Tales, shorter, but, you know, still long poems. The Gower, The Bride of Abydos, The Corsair, and Lara are those four. In 1814, Byron's half-sister Augusta had a daughter, Elizabeth Medora, who would later claim that Byron was her father. So that's... Uh, cool. Yeah. And also in 1814, Byron became engaged to Annabella Milbank. This was possibly financially motivated. Um, Byron was deep in debt and Annabella was the heiress of a rich uncle. Uh, they married in 1815. And in that year, Byron published the collection Hebrew Melodies, a volume of short poems, um, which includes some of his more famous ones. Um, she Walks in Beauty is especially well known. In December of 1815, he and Annabella had their daughter, Ada. Um, Ada would later marry the Earl of Lovelace mm -hmm. and come to be known as Ada Lovelace. You've probably heard of her. His marriage to Annabella was very unhappy. Um, she considered Byron insane. Uh, left him uh, the year after Ada was born and began legal separation proceedings. Wow. In April of 1816, he left England, fleeing scandal and debt, um, and as it turned out, he would never return. In 1816, two more poems were published, uh, The Siege of Corinth and Parisina. Um, he goes to Geneva at this point and becomes friends with Percy and Mary Shelley, and has an affair with Mary's stepsister, Claire Claremont. He is with them and part of their group when... Someone in that little group of writers uh, issues a challenge on a rainy, gloomy day to uh, write a fantastical story, you know, so they each go to write their story mm -hmm. um, and come back to share what they've written. And Mary Shelley has written Frankenstein. So, you know, a lot going on here creatively. Right. Later that year, Canto 3 of Child Herald is published, as well as The Prisoner of Chillon. After this, he travels to Venice has an affair there. In 1817, Claire Claremont, Mary Shelley's stepsister, uh, gives birth to um, his illegitimate daughter, Allegra. On he goes to Rome and uh, publishes Canto Four of Child Herald. Um, and he sells Newstead Abbey to help him with his uh, expenses and his debts. During 1818 to 1820, he writes the first five cantos of 
Don Juan. In all, Don Juan was supposed to total 17 contos, um, although he died with the 17th incomplete. The work as he left it comprises 16,000 lines and like Child Herald is about 550 pages. It's a satiric epic poem. It reimagines the legendary Spanish character of Don Juan. Um, but instead of the traditional p- portrayal of Don Juan as kind of a womanizing cad, Byron's Don Juan inspires infatuation and, and lust in women and is constantly kind of being seduced. <laughs> um, <laughs> and Byron used um, strict rhyme schemes in all of his work and constantly, constantly is rhyming the name of his protagonist with phrases like true one or the word ruin, which is how we know that he was very British and wanted the name pronounced Don Juan. So during this time, he was in love with Countess Teresa Giccioli and uh, spent several years in Ravenna, Italy, continuing Don Juan writing the Ravenna Diary um, and his memoir, My Dictionary and Recollections. He gave his friend and confidant Thomas Moore his autobiography to publish posthumously whenever he should die. Um, but after he died, his friend ended up burning it. Um, <laughs> Good friend right there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what was in it that was so much worse than everything that survived. Right. I guess we'll never know. Uh, Percy Shelley visited him in Italy during this time and wrote, Lord Byron gets up at two. I get up, quite contrary to my usual custom, at twelve. After breakfast, we sit talking till six. From six to eight, we gallop through the pine forest, which divides Ravenna from the sea. We then come home and dine and sit up gossiping till six in the morning. I don't suppose this will kill me in a week or fortnight, but I shall not try it longer. Lord Byron's establishment consists, besides servants, of ten horses, eight enormous dogs, three monkeys, five cats, an eagle, a crow, and a falcon. And all these, except the horses, walk about the house, which every now and then resounds with unarbitrated quarrels, as if they were the masters of it. P.S. I find that my enumeration of the animals in this Circean palace was defective. I have just met on the grand staircase five peacocks, two guinea hens, and an Egyptian crane. I wonder who all these animals were before they were changed into these shapes. <laughs> uh, so that is that is Percy Shelley on visiting Lord Byron in Italy. Nice. Um, yeah, <laughs> just had to put the whole quote in. It's just, it just That's keeps so being good. great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, in 1821, Lord By- Byron relocated to Pisa. Um, his his lover had also was also relocating there. Um, in 1821 and 1822, he finishes Cantos six through twelve of Don Juan. He, Percy Shelley, and Lee Hunt start a newspaper called The Liberal, but it is short-lived. In 1822, Percy Shelley tragically drowns in a boating accident. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Lord Byron moves on to Genoa. In 1823, uh, he accepts overtures from Greek contacts to get involved in the Greek War of Independence. Um, There was a thing happening here also where... His lover's father was in exile, and the father would be permitted to return from exile on the condition that his daughter, Lord Byron's lover, also returned with him, but Byron did not. So they're being kind of broken up by some kind of political thing that sounds very complicated. Mm -hmm. And so he goes off to Greece. July 16, 1823, Lord Byron arrives in Greece. He stays on the island of Kefalonia. 
where he is courted by agents of numerous conflicting factions in this struggle for Greek independence, uh, trying to win him to their cause or their perspective. He contributed 4,000 pounds to refitting the Greek fleet. Um, eventually, he leaves Kefalonia for Missolonghi, where he joined forces with the Greek politician Alexandros Mavrocordatos. Byron sold his estate in England, Rochdale Manor. I guess this is a second estate. I'm not sure where all of this land is coming from. And devoted his financial resources, um, some 20,000 pounds, which would have been a lot of money, in that time, to the cause of Greek independence. He formed the so-called Byron Brigade and devoted himself to trying to unite disputing factions and leaders against uh, the Ottoman Empire. However, in February of 1824, while preparing to lead an attack against the Turkish-held fortress of Lepanto, uh, Lord Byron fell ill. They tried to treat him via bloodletting, as one does. As one does. As, as one did at that time. That was, that was what they thought would help. Uh, they were wrong. He partially recovered, then relapsed, and there was more bloodletting, possibly with less than sterile tools, leading possibly to sepsis. Um, in any case, he developed a violent fever, and in April 1824, he died at the age of 36, uh, to the great shock of his countrymen. Yeah. And so that is, that's the life of Lord Byron. Yeah, it was it was a lot. He was he was prolific, and uh, oh man, he he uh, lo- lots of scandals. He just never stopped. Yeah, so it's yep. <laughs> <laughs> so are you ready for a quiz? Yeah. All right, this is all a Lord Byron quiz, but I've tried to stay away from poetry questions, and uh, so we'll see how this goes. Okay. Question one. Lord Byron started an early celebrity diet craze. Terrified of becoming fat, he had numerous strange eating routines over the course of his life, including one in 1820, when his diet consisted mostly of cabbage and this substance, uh, which he would mix with water. It is high in acetic acid and is popular among fad dieters today. Uh, The Dr. Bragg's brand is especially beloved. What am I talking about here? I am acetic acid. Fat dieters love. I don't know. I remember. I mean, I know. I know a lot of them like cayenne pepper. Mm-hmm. Did you say drinking something? Uh, yes. It, yes. This is. Yeah. It is a liquid. Yes. Jeez. Uh. I. Doc- I don't know. Doctor. Doctor Bragg's brand doesn't do anything for you. Doctor Bragg's brand does not do anything for me. I mean, I. I don't know. Uh, gripe water. I don't know. Hmm, it's not a bad guess. Uh, apple cider vinegar. Um, yeah. Mm, yeah. Mm. The fad dieters are into the apple cider vinegar. I don't really know why. But so was, so was Lord Byron. Yeah, he put himself on a diet of uh, cabbage and apple cider vinegar mixed with water. Uh, gross. And he was really just weird about food throughout his life. He apparently was disgusted that his wife would eat food. Um, uh, uh, he, he wrote to a friend, a woman should never be seen eating or drinking unless it be lobster salad and champagne. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Good to have, uh, good to know your principles, I guess. Yeah. I mean, you know, 
lobster shal- lobster salad and champagne are lovely. But yeah, it's a, it's some some diet culture nonsense. All right, question two. This term has come to mean technophobes. But in Byron's day, it referred to those who opposed automation in the textile industry. Byron's first speech in the House of Lords defended these people, speaking against proposed legislation that would have made machine-breaking a capital offense. Uh, I believe that's Luddite. That is correct. It is the Luddites. Luddite, Luddite is the term. The movement, the Luddite movement was said to be named after Ned Ludd, but Ned Ludd turns out to have been fictional and kind of a kind of a propaganda thing. Um, he was said to be an apprentice who smashed two stocking frames. And uh, mm. this story was passed around to kind of uh, make people outraged about the Luddites. Hmm. Um, yeah. Interesting. So 10 points for you. All right. Question three. Byron was known for his numerous feuds and quarrels with other notable figures of the time, including his outrage at this lord, who removed about half of the remaining statues from the Parthenon. Uh, To this day, they are housed at the British Museum. Uh, Is that Lord Elgin? That is Lord Elgin. He's been coming up a lot. I thought I'd throw him in here. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, Lord Byron uh, railed against Lord Elgin. Not a fan. Um, all right, question four. This is the the one poetry question. Byron died young, but not as young as this other British romantic poet. He died of tuberculosis at the age of 25, but his death was said to have been hastened by the stress of a particularly harsh review of his work. After his death, Byron mocked him in Canto 11 of Don Juan, Writing this stanza, uh, from which I redact only the name of the poet in question. This man, who was killed off by one critique, just as he really promised something great, if not intelligible without Greek, contrived to talk about the gods of late. Much as they might have been supposed to speak. Poor fellow, his was an untoward fate. To strange the mind that very fiery particle should let itself be snuffed out by an article. Hmm. I don't know who died young, and I was trying to listen for, like, rhymes that it could be, but I didn't. Oh, yeah, no, he's at the beginning of the phrase, but from the rhyme scheme, you're looking for, uh, like, yeah. two syllables. I mean, based on that, uh, and and I think I remember some... I, I want to say Wordsworth. Mm, no, it is not Wordsworth. Although he did go after Wordsworth. Yeah. Uh, the, there was that, that Turdsworth... Yeah, um, I think that's thing. what I'm thinking of. Yeah. Um, no, this is John Keats. Um, I, I wanted, I was gonna say, I should have said Keats. Yeah, there, there was also, was Keats. I maybe should have highlighted it better for you, but there was, right. a, there was a line in there, uh, uh, something about Greek, I think was supposed to point to, I think was was uh, uh, throwing shade at Keats's uh, Ode on a Grecian Urn. Ode yep. on mm-hmm. yeah, okay. Yeah. That makes um, sense. Yeah. All right, so you're at 20 points. And here's question five. Uh, Byron's daughter, Ada, became famous in her own right. A gifted mathematician, she worked closely with Charles Babbage on conceptualizing this machine. It would not be built in her lifetime, but the algorithms she wrote for it would earn her the title of the first computer programmer. Um, it, uh, what was that called? What did he call that? I mean, it's a computer, but like, it's not a computer. It's a, um, oh, jeez. Oh, what did he call it? Uh, ah, 
No, I don't know. Analytical machine. I think you're close enough. Analytical engine. Analytical is the engine. Okay. You know what? I, I'm allowing it. Okay. I think, I feel, yeah, let, let's go with that. Analytical engine. Analy- I think analytical machine is good. Thanks. Yeah. All right. So you're at 30 points. And we're going to call the final category American Novelists. Okay. I have no idea where that would be, um, but I will go with... I'll go with 25 points. All right. 25 points. So here we go. Decades after Byron's death, this American author, herself a subject of a deep dive on this very podcast, an author of works including Dread, A Tale of the Great Dismal Swamp, came to the defense of Lord Byron's wife, Annabella, writing an article for the Atlantic Monthly presenting Annabella's side of the story in response to a memoir by Byron's former lover, Teresa Giccioli, whose memoir cast Annabella as narrow-minded, cold-hearted, and without sufficient intellect to comprehend Byron's genius. Hmm. I think I, I, I think I remember this. I hope I remember it right. Otherwise, I did not maintain the uh, the the deep dive. My guess is Harriet Beecher Stowe. Harriet Beecher Stowe is correct. Yes. Yeah. So yes, Byron was sort of remembered as like kind of a martyr and a hero, and then uh, this this lover who uh, wrote this memoir. Where, you know, Annabella had left him and how could she, you know, and then and then Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote this article for the Atlantic Monthly, which if I've understood correctly, I haven't had a chance to read the whole thing yet, although it actually is available, makes the case that Annabella understood that Lord Byron had had an affair with his half sister. Uh, resulting in an illegitimate child. And that was part of the reason that she left him. Mm-hmm. So Harriet Beecher Stowe kind of went to bat for Lord Byron's widow from whom he'd been estranged before he died. Um, but she took a lot of flack for it. And then Mark Twain went to bat for Harriet Beecher Stowe and wrote these articles defending her. Um, <laughs> in any case, uh, you are correct. 55 points. <sighs> nice job. Thanks. Yeah. One day, one day I will remember these things about these people. I will know the difference between Keats and literally anybody else. <laughs> um, Keats, I, I should maybe have annotated that that um, that quiz question a little bit. A lot of these romantic poets died young, um, but Keats wasted away from tuberculosis for years. Hmm. And so a lot of his work sort of wrestles with mortality in a different way because it is from the point of view of somebody who is terminally ill. Hmm. Or, you know, likely terminally ill, you know, tuberculosis at that time could go either way. But like he was he was not well for a long time. Mm -hmm. Um, And that kind of that mood kind of underlies a lot of his work and is kind of a a hallmark of Keats. So that's kind of a a thing to know about Keats. All right. Yeah. Thanks for humoring me with my my romantic poetry deep dives and stuff, Kyle. Of course. (laughs) Yeah. And thank you, listeners for uh, spending your time with us. Um, a delight, as always, to share Jeopardy with you. Uh, make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It would help us if you would leave a review and or a rating. Also, it helps us with the analytical engines. Yes, it I does. Mean. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, we do have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash potentpotables uh, if you want to check it out. 
Even if you don't, you can still help us out by telling your friends. You and them can find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Uh, our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com, and our website is potentpod.com. We'll be back with you next week for another week of Jeopardy. And until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. Bye.